Welcome, everyone, to our last uh, industry talk titled uh, Shifting Perspectives. And it's part of uh, a film program we had uh, in the last weekend, also uh, speaking through films about this topic. So I'm very pleased to, uh, to welcome this uh, wonderful uh, panel here. Moderating today, though, uh, Loira Limbo from Firelight Media in the US. Then we have from France, uh, sorry, I forgot your name, Alexander Michelin. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> and then we have from the UK, Akil Ahmad, and then we have from the US. I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful Tabitha Jackson. Now at Sundance, but used to work at Channel 4. So you're with one leg, I feel a little bit still in Europe. Right? Okay, over to you. Thank you. Images are the primary representation of the people. 
seeing your story being told. It's very hard to have a context in which to live. I kind of found Fire Life just by doing a Google search. And I remember reading the description and I said to myself, wow, this is a place that will want me. I may find a home here. Just meeting with the, the rest of the, the fellows. It's amazing because everybody's going through the same same thing. I do remember the first time I went to a Twilight retreat. I could actually just be myself, bring my own experience, and that was actually a valuable thing. Making films makes you very vulnerable. You're always putting yourself out there, and there is no more supportive community than the Firelink community. One of the difficulties of documentary filmmaking in general is being trapped in your own bubble. I come from a family where there are no artists, no filmmakers, no journalists. You're in this thing kind of by yourself or with your team, and you just need perspective. You just need support. You just need other filmmakers, and I think that's what Firelight has been able to provide. It's so rare. That discussion and that discourse is really important. It keeps us motivated, and it's that sort of camaraderie that I think makes the lab pretty unique. You have an infrastructure to really help you get to the finish line versus sort of wandering in the wilderness. As a first time filmmaker, it can be very hard to get support. You may not have the credits that you need, but you have this amazing project. Half the battle is trying to find out who to work with, where you can get the money to support your project, and how you can sort of validate your journey. Often, um, these films are very hard social issues, and so the check-in, sort of the emotional check-in that the lab provided was very helpful. They understand what we're trying to do here, and I, got, I just get the feeling that they don't want anything other than to help us succeed, and that's hard to come by. You have also a year or two of mentorship. It's not just a weekend or a week, it's actually they stick with you. They paired me with an amazing story editor who helped me really hone my story they help with an engagement consultant. And it's been really game-changing, particularly for a filmmaker like me. I, I live in Hawaii, so I don't bump into filmmakers. I don't bump into distributors. I don't bump into people in the same way I might if I was living in New York or LA. It's a close-knit, down-the-street, round-the-block organization. The lab really genuinely wants you to succeed, and so they're there with you to the end. It's helped me um, be brave. It's helped me kind of push me out my comfort zone. It's cool to be with filmmakers around the country and realize that you're kind of in this wonderful creative struggle together. It really does take a village to make a documentary film, and this is a great village to be part of.
conversation going on now, as I suspect there has been since it was uh, founded by Robert Redford in 1981, um, about uh, representing stories not just from America but from across the world, and are those stories being told by and to the right people? Um, it's a difficult, it's a difficult terrain, I think. This uh, this one, not least because I find it. I find it complex, and I think this um, this conversation, which has been going on for a long time, um, I don't think we've properly found the words for it yet. So whenever I, sorry, this is what you asked me to do, but it's just at the front of my mind. Whenever you ask me to, to say who I am, it's not uh, through one identity. I mean, some days I feel like mixed race, some days I feel like a woman, some days I feel like an adopted child, some days I feel like the daughter of divorced parents, sometimes I feel English, sometimes I feel European. All those identities are in there somewhere. So when I'm asked to tick a box to describe who I am, I find it kind of, it's not offensive, but it's a very blunt instrument. And as we at Sundance are one of the kind of gatekeepers of giving out money and giving opportunity to people and engaging with audiences, to look at, at three things. One is the artists we serve. How do we make sure that, that they are representing um, the stories and the storytellers from particularly the US but around the world? The audiences we reach, who's, who gets to come to see these films? And are we making sure that the work is going to where they are? And then the institute itself. Who are the people making decisions about whether a film gets funded or whether a film gets accepted into a festival? Because as filmmakers, you will know that what you bring, the way you see the world, is through you. And that's no different to people who are given out money in films. So who are we? And are there enough people with enough perspectives to recognize um, a distinctive resonant story? Or do you get the same types of people, no matter what their different colors and ages and genders, the same types of people coming with the same attitudes towards the world, saying, mm, that film didn't really connect with me. So I think there are lots of things to unpack. I don't know if this panel is a place to do it, but, but <laughs> that's, that's where I come from. Um, what Sundance is interested in is we started uh, with, well, when the uh, institute was, was founded, uh, this was before we even had a festival, it began with Redford uh, founding a native program because he was very aware that uh, First Nations and Indigenous people are almost invisible in the state. And he wanted to so we have a native program. We now have a diversity program. We're calling it now Inclusion. Um, uh, we have a women's initiative, and there's been a lot of work um, from Sundance and UCLA to just look at the data of women in Hollywood and women making films and film directors. And there's also an Ignite program, which is about getting younger people in, because that's a key point too. But again, to me, they're all pretty big, blunt blocks of stuff. If we're not going to have the same conversation for the next 20 years, we need to think differently, perhaps, about how we understand people. So, Thabo, they jump like straight into the deep end. <laughs> so you were ready. You, you did not need a break. So I'm 46. I'm going to talk a small talk. Can you tell us a little bit about um, your your own journey, your personal journey in the space, um, coming from working in the space in the UK and then moving to the US? 
started off, uh, I was a filmmaker and started, as many people do at the BBC, and uh, worked there for some time, <clears throat> did various things, wrote a book, uh, moved to um, New York, which is where I fell in love with independent uh, filmmaking, and then was offered a job at Channel 4, which is how Akil and I know each other. Um, the job that I was offered was as a, I've been a filmmaker up until then, director and producer. The job that I was offered was, was a deputy commissioning editor, and it was on a diversity scheme. And I turned it down uh, because I didn't want to go in on a diversity scheme. And then I turned it down again the following year, because I still didn't want to go in on a diversity scheme. And then they said, we, we're not going to offer it to you again. So, uh, okay, I'm okay. Um, so I, the reason I didn't want to go in on a diversity scene was A, because that's not how you want to be seen as a, as a, as a number, but also more profoundly, I thought, um, you think I'm diverse, but I know that we went to similar universities, we shop in the same place, we read the same newspapers, we've got the same level of educational uh, achievement, um, we're probably from the same background as we describe it in the UK. I'm not remotely diverse and this is perpetuating the problem. I'm going to commission the same things as you are. Um, and so you're not you're not looking in the right place. However, I took the job and it has to be said that um, after the first couple of years of trying to prove myself, it did have an incredible effect on my career. Uh, and I feel I still feel that I certainly felt then like was when people did come up and say it, it was meaningful to them seeing someone who looked like them um, in the position that I was in. But it still felt weird. That's all Thank you. <laughs> oh wait, then I should say, sorry, then I should say, I mean, it's from um, Channel 4, I then uh, moved to Sundance, um, which was a whole different kind of education for me. I was at Channel 4 for seven years, so, two, so I think two years of that, maybe one year was on the Deputy Commission of Editor Scheme, and then, uh, and then I got a job and I stayed there for seven years. And then I came to Sundance, and um, that was a whole different education about race and the complexities of race and racism and identification and what we do about it. It's, I, I still am grappling with it, but. Um,
be the first. You know, and then I discovered photography and filming, and then film school to do a degree, and at the same interview, they said, oh, why do you want to be a, a filmmaker? There aren't that many in filmmaking in Britain. I said, oh, I want to be the first, which is a bit cheesy, because there must be more people before me. And, and from that, went into television as a journalist, working with a filmmaker, and worked my way up, making lots and lots of different programs. Some of them, be, but never going in any kind of diversity scheme, because I dismissed them all, you know. And, um, and, and, and I remember when I got to become, I'd been at the BBC, uh, uh, two spells at the BBC in about a six month gap. And in the second spell, uh, I'd been working for about nine, ten years by this point, and I was uh, an executive producer. And there was a diversity scheme that I was told you must apply for the scheme. And I went for this interview, and I remember them saying to me, um, what is it you'd like to do? And I said, well, I, I, I imagine myself being in control of the channel like BBC too. And they never, I remember laughing. I said, what laughing at? And they, and they were a bit taken aback. And I said, because I've done all of this, I'm an executive producer in my early 30s, I've been seen the big 9 p.m. flagship show called Everyman. Um, I don't quite understand why you think I'm not going to come And there was a lot, all sorts of apologies. But I remember, I know what they, I know in my heart what they were thinking. They were thinking, people like you don't go to become a controller like that. You know, you've done very well, you know, just do as you told. So I decided not to go on that scheme. And then I carried on doing my work, and then I got a phone call out of the blue from Channel 4, because I, again, this is how life can be weird. I bumped into a friend on the street who told me she was a commissioning editor at Channel 4. We'd worked previously, that seemed to be about 10 years, and we'd worked previously together, and she simply said, you know, we should get in such, you know, we exchanged business cards, felt very clever, felt very good about ourselves. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call from Channel 4 saying, similar thing, we're looking for someone to look after religion. And I'd spent a couple of years because of 9-11, etc., moving from current to religion, doing documentaries about what was going on. So I joined Channel 4 as a commissioning editor, not really knowing what commissioning editor was. And actually, do you know what, in that <coughs> six, set, I think I was there for six years at Channel 4. And in those six years, um, I, I, I realized what having real a voice really meant. And making the kind of programs that we made, whether it be the you know, first ever interviews with those suicide bombers or um, programs about the rise of African Christianity and what the impact that had on the languages. I could go on and on. We did the films about uh, the bomb 77. We did the first ever documentary ever on the Quran. We had, I brought in diverse talent on screen and was on screen. And then I remember one day the, the boss of Channel 4 said to me, um, We're going to make the head of the multicultural program as well because you're doing such a good job of it and you need someone to be a figurehead for people to talk about. And I remember the really interesting thing was lots of people in the industry said, oh, I thought that was your job because you were doing it. And I didn't realise, it's one of those things you don't realise until you're in it that other people don't do. And one person of, of colour, as it were, did say to me once, and he did say, if I was you, I'd stop doing all this kind of stuff because it's going to ruin your career. And at the time I thought, what do you know, you're sell out. Uh, but actually, the fact that I understand in one respect what he meant. And then, about seven, so, uh, seven and a half years ago, I got approached by the BBC to come back to be uh, the head of the ethics of the BBC, which meant commissioning, as well as managing in house production, radio, television, digital, and advising across the whole of the outputs, about seven, seven and a half thousand hours of radio and television across uh, nations, regions, and different uh, um, platforms. Um, and I did that simply because I just you know, I, I wanted to break, I wanted to do something different. And having done that job for seven, seven and a half years, I've now decided 
I thought that was the wrong thing to do. I felt that you should just be employed because you're good rather than be on some scheme. So I understand exactly what and we talked about it at the time. But when I when uh, we have this thing called the Creative Diversity Network in, in, in Britain, and that's all the broadcasters sign up and they and they've created this organization called CDM. And it does and it and it works on issues around diversity. So I was asked to become the chair of the commission group. So we had three groups, production, news, and commissioning. And I had a road to Damascus moment because I'd seen Tabitha and people like Tabitha and what they achieved. And so I suddenly realised that actually what we need to have is a pan-industry commissioning, training commissioning data scheme because it's only when you have people in positions of authority that you can make that change. And we need more people in positions of authority. So I, we devised it, we worked really hard. I personally pitched it to all the CEOs, all the CEOs of all the major broadcasters. And we are now, at the moment, recruiting for the second time. We've had one go with it, and now the second one, the, the recruitment is just Started. So that's a pan-industry scheme, but across the BBC and all the broadcasters and major companies, there are entry-level schemes, there are mid-level schemes, there are, there are schemes, we've got schemes coming out of our ears. Um, but, and the last thing we think we should leave on is, we've got schemes coming out of our ears, and just like Talitha said, will we be having this conversation in 20 years' time? Probably, because I think we must be the most unluckiest industry because we keep employing people who are diverse and then they get to a certain level and they fail. So we must be really unlucky that we don't know how to employ the right people.
several companies came to talk to me and offer me a job. And I thought, so we realized something is happening and you're young, it's a little bit difficult. I moved to a, a big organization called Vivendi Channel Plus where I was managing uh, digital uh, uh, channels. Uh, I had uh, in my, let's say, DNA the innovation side Television to digital satellite, then I was heading the digital operations of Europe. And um, there was always, from the very beginning of my career, people asking me, My name is Michelin. So when they send me an email or uh, a message, they expect some like guy. And then the first meeting said, Are you Michelin? I said, Yes, I'm Michelin. Because Michelin is a very French name. So they were looking at me, oh, you're Michelin. They, nobody said anything, but you understand it. You know, it's something you know when you are whatever different. And um, I'm, I'm used to it. And actually, I think it's it's a uh, it's good. You know, even if it's difficult, because people are trying to, to understand why you are there uh, in a position where you can make decisions. Uh, so I, I moved to this international uh, organization, and I was hired by the French uh, public service, France uh, and they proposed me to run uh, an educational channel called Sports 5. And it was the first time in my career where I really heard people telling me, wow, we love the idea that you are on this side of the, uh, of the table, that you are the decision maker. It's the first time there was there's someone in your position with your skill and your background in this position. And I had to manage it carefully because like all of us, we don't like to be you know, identify because somewhere you are, whatever, you know, Indian or black or Arabic uh, or whatever. You think you are the best, simply, and you, you try to do the best. And, and, and the, the funny thing is that uh, I opened many doors, I, I launched many shows, I gave opportunities to a lot of French people from different backgrounds, Arabic, African, West Indians, whatever, because I thought it was. Obvious, and my CEO, my president, was pushing me to do it. And so it was a, a fantastic opportunity. So in two years, I launched many shows with, without saying it was diversity, but putting diversity everywhere. For example, we, we ran a, we, we, I, 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 um, we had a very successful show called Cult, Urban Culture, and we won an international Emmy Award. The show was not about diversity, but the show was showing bloggers from our friends interacting with the guests, uh, but we carefully selected the, 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 the kids. So to have a vision of friends, it's not only a white friends, but you can have kids from whatever they are, they are background where. So, so it gave immediately the feeling that we were talking about something very different. And we won an Emmy Award, and the week after I was fired. Because, <laughs> because somewhere, you know, with, I, had, I was lucky for the president who was supporting me, and then the new president had other ideas. And in that situation, I was a symbol. I was like, oh, the only guy with, with a different background is fired. And um, it was a, a, a mistake they made and they understood, and especially the French uh, politicians understood it. And they proposed me to, uh, to, to run uh, a fund they have created called uh, Le pour la Diversité. Uh, you have to understand a bit how French works. You have a, a system called CNC, Centre National du Cinema. We subsidizing everything uh, from television to movies. So they proposed me to run that fund because uh, in 2005 there were riots in France and the French president at that time was Jacques 
make the decision to push and to try to do something to change the image of all the populations that were in France. Uh, uh, so they asked me to run the firm. It was not a big firm, 10 million euros, but the idea was to identify programs, help them specifically because of this uh, diversity angle we have in it from documentaries to features to whatever type of content it could be. And for 10 years, uh, I was, it, was not a, it was not a job, it was more of a mission. I was doing other things on the other side. But for 10 years, I ran that, that fund. Uh, we have been, I would say, successful because now every year in the French uh, uh, context, you, you have a big movie, a big, a very popular movie that is more or less about diversity. We push them like mad, uh, big comedies, where you have this question behind. And, and then we, we have been very successful for documentaries, very successful for feature films. And I think we also have been one big failure, which is the television uh, fiction. Because there you realize that the decision makers in the French television are not at all at ease with representing France like France is really. They, they are struggling because their audience is uh, very old. They don't want to show that old audience of France that is uh, with young, Black, Asian, Arabic, whatever uh, background there. They, they are they are struggling with that. So the big success on that front was uh, Alice, the movie industry, who, who saw the opportunity of these diverse uh, casts, diverse stories. The biggest success, for example, we have is a French movie called Tantouchan. It's a, a it's a true story of a guy from the suburbs uh, with a Arabic uh, with a, a giant background who is taking care of an handicapped class. And it was, it's a real story. It's a real story, it's a documentary, and, and some uh, very successful uh, screenwriters adapted it and made a movie about it, called Antichat. It's the most successful movie of the French history. More than 25 million people saw the movie. And uh, there was a guy called Omar Sy, who is now the most, uh, the most adored, I would say, French actor. He's from Senegalese background. He's so French, he's now living in LA. And uh, <laughs> he decided to, uh, to leave because he couldn't have any role in France anymore. And he's, 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 um, that's where France is a strange country because you have this national front, you have this extreme right. At the same time, the most uh, popular actor is this black guy called Omar Sy, which is uh, coming from a, 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 a suburb, a city called Trap. He's uh, black, he's Muslim, he's from Senegalese background and he's married to a, a French white woman and they have fantastic kids. So the country is like that. It's a, it's a, it's a mix of uh, extremism and people who are open-minded. So, uh, and, and my story was, was, was about 
supposedly as a representative of whatever the, the, the binary is, but naturally in charge of an activity because you are able to do it. So to me, it's, it's part of it. So, so, so uh, uh, the, and the last thing is what I, I love about this panel you, you are managing is that we have so many things in common without knowing each other. When I was listening to your story, I, I could have said half of what you would say, mm -hmm. and the same for you, uh, Akil. So it's it's probably uh, a bigger phenomenon than we even realize. Europe probably has a real issue with, with that question. Uh, um, I was running uh, a jury. I was head of a jury in construction in La Rochelle two years ago. There was a, a black guy coming from Congo who came to me and said, "I want to." He said, what? Afropian, they said. So they created this new concept in, uh, in, in, in ourselves. They, they have a lot of people from Congo, and they consider themselves not like African-Americans. They call themselves Afropian. Because they say, we are Africans, but we have a European background, we live in Europe, and we are different than African-Americans. So, so it's, I was surprised. I said, what? Well, I didn't know I was an Afropian, but why not? Nobody discovered religion, and it was about ethnicity. 
And so there was a whole issue then about do we make programs for the Asian community or not? And satellite television was coming in. So what happened was that the, most organizations stopped really making targeted television programming or, or representative television programming for the Asian community. And what we were hearing was, and I was a proponent of this because I believed it as a young idealistic program maker, and I, said, and I believed and agreed that what I was fighting for not making targeted programming, which I think quite a bit of, but actually it should all be in the mainstream. Because surely we have reached this point in the mid-90s where there was enough of us, there was enough of us coming into the industry as well, and we should be making it more mainstream. And I think what history has told us is actually there's not enough in the mainstream. And some of the programs that I would have made, um, we're still making them, but there's a bunch of us making them in our own little pockets, calling it religion or calling it on radio or in local programs or occasionally in a network program because there's a gap for these particular stories to be told. And that was a decision I regret in hindsight, that kind of pushing for that. And so now, when you look at the, the, the kind of dysfunctionalities within, within our society between people who feel that they have a voice and don't have a voice, and we've seen it manifested in America with the Trump election, we've seen it with Brexit, we are seeing it in all across Europe. Um, it, it, it's become, for me, a big issue. And I, when I talk about diversity, I'm talking not just about colour of skin or about gender or, all, or disability, all the kind of classic things. The biggest thing for me, I come from the northwest of England, uh, from a you know immigrant family, you know, market traders, etc. And I know I have lots of family friends who have not got careers or etc. People I grew up with who are you know just have basic jobs. And, um, and, and, and there is an issue about who we have and what they say and, what the, and how angry those people are. And so for me now, the second pivotal moment for me is, is how are we going to represent those voices? Because if we don't hear those voices, and there is this one, you'd have to excuse me, I'm a bit of an accent, I'm also a professional, I've written on this, so I, if I use some phrases, stop me and say speak in English. But that is, if we, we have this thing, you laughed at when I told you about hyper so we have this thing which is extreme diversity, which is there's far more diversity now in Britain than there was in Britain that I grew up in the 70s and 80s. So we have this extreme diversity and people are un unsure about how to deal, cope, relate, understand, accept, live with this level of hyper diversity. And our job surely is to understand this. But if we have a liberal consensus of what is right and what is wrong, then we don't understand the people who are living with that hyperdiversity. So when, if you are poor white, because this diversity, what happens is, apart from London, which is an extreme place, and the rest of Britain, they don't go and live everywhere. They live in certain areas. So in, in areas where poor white people, poor ethnic minorities live, have lived in hand in hand in a kind of relation, a, a symbiotic relationship for quite some time, this hyper-diversity moment which has happened in the, in the last 15 years though, they will come to those areas as well. So they're at breaking point, but their voices are not being heard because they're not part of the liberal consensus, they're not part of that middle class elite that make up our industries. So for that, so with this, this pivotal moment for me is diversity needs to go from being a box ticking about we have these kind of people working in our organization through to do we have the right voices? Because if we don't give those voices the opportunity to be heard, 
true public service broadcasting means everybody having an equal voice. And, and if we're really honest, everybody in this room, you know, do we really think that there is such a thing as an equal voice? If somebody doesn't agree with the liberal consensus on what is acceptable, so what, we, what do we accept about race, about sexuality, about gender, about the economy, about politics, but all of these things, they are not treated as equal. You know, an extreme evangelical Christian, for instance, is not treated as equal as somebody with a secular voice. A racist, you know, somebody who thinks that, not a racist, actually, I'll tell you that, right? so somebody who thinks, thinks that, that Britain being part of the European Union has meant that with the free movement that we have now millions of people in, our, in, in certain geographical areas, which has had huge significant impact on our, on our infrastructure, on the job market, etc. That person has never been allowed to speak as an equal to the, to the rest. So when I talk about diversity today, I want to move, I think that's the biggest elephant in the room that we need to address, which is it's now no longer about ticking the box. It's got to be about who, why, what, and how we speak. I, I wanted to, to share with you what we've been doing for us, because from a strict perspective, from a strict point of view, trans diversity doesn't exist simply. Because we are all equal, we are all citizens of the French Republic, and no one is allowed to make a differentiation by race, religion, whatever. It's the first or the two or third article of the French Constitution. It's a heritage, it's a legacy of the French Revolution. We are all equal citizens. Then you can't count. You don't have statistics. You don't have ethnic uh, ways to measure out the number of people and so on. And it is still a debate. And even the diversity word was a political decision uh, uh, Imposed by uh, Sarkozy uh, and, uh, and, and even Jacques Chirac by the right conservative because they were confronted to, uh, to uh, the reality of the, the French suburbs made of different religions. And it's again a legacy of the, the French colonial empire. That's why you have so many French people who are from diverse origins because France was uh, uh, the, the, the center of the colonial empire. And even my background, my family comes from the French West Indies, and a few French people know that the West Indies are uh, French for 300 years, actually. And uh, the famous artists like Alexandre Dumas are actually uh, black people. A few French people know that Alexandre Dumas is black. They don't even think it's true when we tell them. But he was. He was the son of a, of a slave, and, 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 and his father was the general of Napoleon. So, but people don't know that story. So it's very difficult for them to really understand that then from this old history to the recent history, you have people who are not Gaulois, uh, uh, let's say, which is the, the myth uh, of French people. They are all not Latin, they are Gaulois, which is a long tribe, uh, a kind of Celtic tribe, that is supposedly the one creating France. So even in last week debates, Elections, you have we mentioned the Gaulois as the real French. So this is the context. And you're not supposed to, to talk about diversity. So everything happened because you had so much pressure. And they, for example, asked me to do the job because they didn't know how to manage it at, um, in say, uh, Calgary. Uh, and and, and we, we created this fund without having tools to make a, a 
I can imagine they would think 
why would I go there? They'll never give me the money. And actually, maybe I don't want to take the money because my worldview is so different. So they don't even see you as credible. Right, right, exactly. They're not a point of reference. Yeah, yeah. On that, yeah. New York Times is not a point of reference. Exactly. So that's we, post-Trump, we are questioning ourselves as well and how to bridge this gap of, of understanding what the stories are in the world because maybe we're only getting half of them. So it's a, it's a big thing. I have a problem with the word diversity just because of how it's misused so often that people will, will refer to individuals as, oh, he's diverse, or she's diverse. It's bullshit. That doesn't even mean anything. It's being personified. It's being used as a, another euphemism to mean other. That person's other. So good, they can be in our other scheme. And I think, again, just, just going, the language is really important because we have to understand what the, what the philosophy is behind this notion of diversity and othering people, and whether that's ever going to have an effect. Um, so I know now the word is, uh, we're moving towards inclusion, um, which seems more helpful, I guess. I don't really understand, the, again, I don't really understand the philosophy behind it. Somewhere, someone said diversity is inviting people to the party and inclusion is asking them to dance. So if it's a more active, <laughs> active engagement, then I guess inclusion is the right word. And that's what we mean. I mean, one thing about diversity, I think, which is kind of a tools question, I really want to add with, with uh, disability and gender and race and worldview and socioeconomic position, creative diversity. We have, it came, I was struck by this when I was at, at Channel 4, and um, I started a strand called Random Acts, which was just these little hand grenade, creative hand grenades that went late in the schedules and uh, in between programming. Um, and because there was so, it was, it was clear that there was so much incredible creativity uh, online, people were making things that were kind of eye-popping or mind-blowing or simply beautiful, um, that we weren't putting on television, and I was in the box then. And so I was like, why don't we just open it up for people to do that? And so, and I didn't care what it was, it just had to kind of pop or strike this little hand of fireworks going off. Um, and so we did this, and they were going out every night, so we were commissioning 360 uh, of them. And we had a big party for the launch, most uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily different set of people from the other parties that we were having from more traditional uh, long-form television. And it, I think it was because it was you start from the creative diversity and then you get different kinds of people uh, who can both have the means of production and be able to deliver these things were three minutes long maximum. Um, uh, but also, you're not impo there is no worldview being imposed. There is no sense of, oh, your, your program needs to fit our slot and our audience, and it needs to be 52 minutes long, and it has to have these production values. It was just open, and so, particularly now working in um, feature-length documentary, in my particular job, then I know that not just the length of and the requirement in an underfunded independent space rules out a huge amount um, uh, but also the, the reliance, particularly in the US, I think, on the three-act structure. You have, a, you have your, you know, 
exciting instant in your character-led beginning, middle, end thing. What's the story? And it's not that I don't respond to those. I do. I love them. But I just also know there's another way. Not everything has to be a story in non-fiction. It can be poetic. And there are different. In, we we work a lot in China and the Middle East. There are just different ways of expressing the world in non-fiction terms. And I think we also are in danger of excluding people by by kind of insisting on this shape. I and mean, you hear it around the commissioning tables as well. You know, it's we have a particular perspective that we, we must be aware of to be aware of who might not be fitting into that and what we what we're missing. So tools. Um, uh, certainly it's about access and mentoring and networks and for example in, uh, in uh, new technology or non-linear technology like VR, we saw uh, an incredibly white, incredibly male um, set of people who had access to the technology and the money and the power. So the best thing that we could do as Sundance was to partner with, um, with uh, George and partner with Google and YouTube and make sure that we're bringing in a much more representative uh, field of people who can get access to this, particularly in this nascent state where people are really hungry for content. They don't know where it comes from, they just need it for their, their text. Like, we need, A, we need to get the artists in there, not just the technologists, and B, we need to get people with very different worldviews to do different things with it. <laughs> Wow. 
again, the same uh, lack of diversity, lack of representation. So it's, it's a real issue. And, and I think we, we have to be aware of that because we are somewhere lucky to have uh, power of uh, decision making uh, in the old world, but in the new world, unfortunately, you don't see the same type of thing. It's, it's interesting, actually. I think that in the world of digital technology and digital programming in that, in that area, there are a lot more diverse people coming through. So that's the, 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 what we know of, in particular, you talk about Britain now, that people of a diverse background, i.e., second, third, third generation, second, third generation, and, and people that are actually better, the earlier adopters yes. of technology. So because the early adopters of technology, they're actually finding it easier to go into these particular fields than they are to go into traditional mainstream kind of journalism, filmmaking, etc. So in a funny way, actually, that might, it, it, it's all four countries different In a funny way, there actually might be something quite challenging to the established order coming from that particular area. Unless, as it were, that becomes the established order, effectively, it, it, it takes over and it stays as it is. But when you talk about the tools, it's actually about understanding that these moments, that's why I mean, that's why they talk about the assembly, little moments happen. It's about understanding particular moments and why you are doing so. So right now, you know, Britain's not alone. In many, many countries, there are huge cutbacks happening in terms of funding. There are issues around about, about how the market changes as well. I've seen how the market in my career, the market has changed radically in how we operate, you know, the buying model, banking model, etc. We're going through, particularly a big organisation like the BBC is going through a period of change in how it's going to operate and, and make programmes uh, and how that infrastructure is going to work, i.e. making people work outside, on inside, etc. All those things. And, and when you go to that and you throw into the mix issues that we have around contracts, you know, the days of people joining an organisation and spending 40 years and then leaving it gone, really, uh, for most people. So a lot of people, again, it goes back to that earlier point we were making about, you know, the, the tools can also often be about, uh, about access. 
again, there's four people with lives, and how does that actually work? Um, so there's the, there's the entry level stuff and just general sustainability, but then there's also the, uh, the, the further up the ladder, as it were, and getting into commissioning, which may be a bit, maybe too late now, isn't it? <laughs> traditional broadcasters, but um, there were, it was interesting because we were approached, um, when I was at Sundance, we were approached to support a producer's scheme, producers of colour. And, um, you know, obviously a great thing to support producers of colour. But the philosophy behind it, in my opinion, was a bit off. Because it suggested that um, the organisation who wanted to support it, with the best of intentions, um, as a public broadcaster, were saying, maybe, you know, these producers can get mentorship and experience and, and great, and that's all great. But they were not offering a position within the broadcasters. So to my earlier that not wanting to take a, a job on the diversity scheme, actually I think that was a great that was channel four putting its money where its mouth was. Because the assumption or the implication is that the reason why there aren't more producers of colour in broadcasting is because they're not quite good enough yet. And if that's not the case, it's because there there are not enough opportunities. So if you want to fix it, make the opportunity. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of that, there are a lot of these schemes, I don't have a problem with the word scheme, I think we just use initiative as a, as, a, as a different word, but I don't have a problem with the scheme as long as they really recognise and acknowledge where the roadblock is. And it's not in the talent, it's in the opportunity. Yeah, I, I mean I think, you know, that's, that's crucial, you know, hearing all of you speak um, made me think about a conversation I had recently with a friend that was about the Oscars, so white online debate and you know really by the end of the conversation we left thinking well the real problem is that everything is so white. Right? I was a judge um, for one of the only um, programs that gives awards to um, sort of artists at you know the sort of elementary school level and high school school level. There are very few national programs in the United States that recognize young people for their artistic um, and this is a national program, hundreds and hundreds of submissions. By the time that we get to them, we are seeing the young people from all over the country who have won awards. Um, as part of that process, we watched something like 85 short films. Some were documentary, some were scripted, some were uh, animation and experimental. Um, and out of somewhere like 85 films, you know, maybe two. Um, feature uh, diverse community. I, I, I use the word community of color as part of my age and generation and where I come from. Um, you know, and so, you know, to me, it's like when we're talking about, for example, having people with different creative approaches, you know, that access and that conversation starts so much earlier, right? It's always, always in an environment, in an educational environment, where they're being treated as a whole person that might have, you know, artistic possibility. You know, the reality is across the United States, most public schools lead with a punitive approach to children of color. You know, as a parent, I've experienced it myself. You know, and so it's like at seven, at 13, at 15, you know, part of, for me, part of this conversation is really about like, who sees them 
themselves, right, as being able to be different things and that possibility and how we make that, it's you know, it's possibility. Because I, I'm a um, founding member of the uh, Princess, Princess Trust uh, um, charity called Mosaic. So we are a lot mentioned organization. And, we, uh, and it came out from years ago. I got an invitation for dinner with Prince Charles. And I thought, well, I will go to that. You know, dinner with Prince Charles. And he said to me, he goes, what's going to be, he goes, how are we going to, he's a, he's a visionary guy, you know, he took me from a revolver getting to a revolver somewhere, which will never happen. But, but the thing is, when he's, he's a visionary guy, this was about nine years ago, ten years ago, and he said to me, um, we need to do something, and his adapted performance, we need to do something about, about young Muslim men, and what role models do they have, and what can they see as an achievement level for them. And I am thinking nothing of and then within six months, we've set up Mosaic. And we've been running for, we're coming up to our 10th anniversary. We met, we have mentored about 13,000, 40,000 school kids and We started out as being a Muslim initiative. It's now a Muslim, it's now for anybody. You know, uh, we have all sorts of programs. But the basic fundamental is that we want to give people who do not aspire to certain things, or if they aspire, don't have the tools to get to them, or they don't have the, they don't, they don't, a lot of people may not work in an office. So we have World of Work visits, so we do, we mentor, etc. We've high flyers mentoring people. So people like the, now the Mayor of London was one of our mentors, and he's now you know, one of our champions, etc. We can go on, you know, we've, very, we've, worked, we've grown as an organization to see some of our people in big positions. But you're right, it goes back to that point. If you don't get people at an early stage, you realize that they can achieve, and it's going to have a but then when you get people into the industry, then we also have to continue with that mentoring, and we have to continue giving people skills, we have to continue giving them the kind of access, and all of that kind of stuff, because actually this is, particularly I'm sort of written now, and other countries are very different, it's a very, um, it's a difficult organisation, it's a difficult organisation in an industry to navigate. It's people talking a certain way, people acting a certain way, and they are culturally accepting of certain things and sort of things. And you need help and guidance and navigation. And, as I've been told over the years, it's been difficult for me, I've had it a little bit, but I have never really had it, is you need champions. So I've been every other public champion, but who's my champion? Nobody. So the fact of the matter is, without a champion, you can never achieve anything. And these are skills that you need to learn. And actual fact, not having those skills is your own fault in the end. I don't mean that because, it, because actually this is how it works. And you cannot often 
for people who have different stories to tell, splitting issues for people who don't have enough money to wait for the, the story to become successful or identified like a great story, or even if they succeed in producing this content, they can be tuned because nobody really believes like the movie industry that this can make money in, in a theater. So you have a kind of accumulation of, 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 of problems making it like you're not only a champion, you need to be a super champion to survive uh, this world. So it's something that not necessarily only for people from the diversity, but in case of young you know, people who don't have this background, it's actually making it almost impossible, making it almost impossible to succeed. And then you don't have the champion. So you need to work on both on all the fronts. So you know, when I say champion by the way, I don't mean you being brilliant yourself like Superman or Superwoman. I mean a person now helping you, a champion, somebody who will put you in mentor. the right place, yeah. Yeah, a mentor, but not, but, but put you in the right place, speak about you. Yeah. I, I know how it works, particularly in the local organizations. You know, such and such a body, I think they should be the person leading them. Maybe this is very good. I'd like to leave some time for a question. No, no, it's um, very European. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've one, seen how it works, I'm afraid. One, one issue that we didn't even touch on is really the motivation. Why even? Have these conversations, why are we even striving for this, right? And is it because the other is a threat or we see the other as an opportunity or we're trying to abolish the other, you know, what is it that we're working on? <coughs> but I'd like to um, open to um, the floor for any questions or comments. Hello. Um, I actually have a question for uh, Mr. Ahmed. Uh, for something that you said in the beginning I didn't, I didn't really quite understand. Um, you said something about um, that you're in the unluckiest business or industry, and that they employ people of color or people with a different background. They rise to a certain level, and then they fail. And then you said we need to employ the right people. And I didn't really understand what you meant by that. <laughs> Sorry, I should have said that irony alert. Yeah. Um, so it's been ironic. Right? Other industries, I've got friends, I've got business school, I've got friends with telecommunications and things like that, and banking. So a lot of the, 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 the Princess Trust charity I'm on the board of, I'm the board person on the board, as it were, I'm with people who are senior partners at banking deal or head of finance for this particular company and that company. And, um, and they don't understand that you kind of have very senior people from culturally diverse backgrounds. It's the norm. Because it has to be, because that's how the business operates. They would be dead without it. Um, so when they listen to me, and they've had to listen to me for the last decade talk about certain things, they don't get it. Um, so when I say we're one of the most unluckiest industries, it's kind of like everybody else seems to manage this, so we're really unlucky that we can't pull it off. Right? I'm in um, And in terms of employing the right kind of people, thinking about if we're going to go down, we've got to look at this actually, it's funny thing actually, I mean, I didn't want this to go down a particular route of this being negativity, because actually I don't think it's all negative, it's positive. My point is this is a positive. So if we get this right, if you're a public service broadcaster, it's a positive that you have a diversity of voices, because therefore you have a reason to exist. Because whether it's through a license fee or through advertising, people will want to pay for it and will, will champion it, because you're giving them a voice. If on the other hand, and I've been out licensed for you collecting, 
Well, I've been out knocking on doors saying, you've not paid your license, well, people have said, you've not paid your license to be, or by the way, can you introduce you to what the next problem is, senior manager? And then they'll, if they're from a particular social economic ground, they'll say certain things. But a lot of migrants who've come to the country in the last five to ten years would say, you do nothing for me. Yes. And, and so the point is, if we do nothing for them, then they won't buy a license. So it's a positive getting this right. It's not me saying, you need to give me a job because I'm a person of colour. This is me saying, if we don't get this right across all our public service broadcasting outlets in the, in the world, then why should we exist? And if you're a commercial outlet, this may be seen as being niche. But let me throw something to you now. We sat in, in Europe and we know that... So if the demographic trend is going one particular way. And that is, it's going to be more hyper-diverse, right? So in the Oxford Centre for Migration Studies talk about, in Britain, by 2050, we were looking at having 40% of our country would be of a migrant background. In Germany and Holland, it's in the 25, 30%, yeah? So the fact of the matter is, if we don't get this right today, it's a bit of an issue, right? If we don't get this right in five to 10 years' time, we may not be around for the following five to 10 years. Because if 30 to 40% of your population say, you don't, you don't understand what's happening between my, my ears, and my, you know, then why, would, why are they, well, how can we exist? Because that's too big a proportion of our population. So when I'm talking about diversity, it ain't a negative. It's a positive, which is, so employ the right people who understand these kind of issues. So therefore, when we get to that, and it, there's no point trying to hide that, hide that, that ostriches, our heads in the sand, if we get to 30, 40% of our population being in migrant background of some form or other, and I class, even though I was born in Britain, I'm sort of a migrant background, if, you, if that's the case, it's going to be too late if we don't get it right now. Because these people we start hiring from now on are going to be the people that are making decisions in 15 to 20 years' time. Sure. Someone else? Um, this issue is so huge and so vastly diverse, but I have a question that maybe it's, it's a step further. But, um, I live in Berlin and I grew up there, so it's a very, whatever word you want to use, it's a mixed area. <laughs> but right now, all the stuff going on with Brexit, Donald Trump, we have Germany, we have the rise, we have a movement in France, the Evan. But it's actually, one, you know, you have the mixture of this information bubble. You know, the filter bubble, as it's talked about, and we have, I don't know, my, my area, like the Turkish um, teenagers, they have like one thing going on, I don't know it. Then I, I leave the city and I go outside, so right wing, you know, hardcore German people, they have that thing going They don't mix, they don't communicate. The same as you said with the, um, I mean, we hear like preaching to convert to that, and soon we can agree on There's no like propaganda from the info at Sunday, so we're not communicating with I have an answer, it's a question. That that's why I was insisting. That's my big question now, right? That's why I was insisting on the technology. Because if people are going to manage Facebook, whatever the technology uh, we are facing, if you look at the way Donald Trump is using Twitter, if people are not able to manage the new technology, they will be out of the debate, and all this algorithm world we are living in is a very Traditional liberal television addressing the same message to millions of people. 
So, and, and, and it's a real issue people are taking into account now because of what's happening in the US with the elections. Yeah, but, but we, all the geeks of the world, knew it. And the problem is you need to have all the, let's say, people with this, let's say, great positive agenda involved in this debate. Because otherwise, if you go to Mark Zuckerberg, he will tell you, well, you know what, on the neutral platform, you know? And it's not my fault if you have a right extremist, right, whatever, white supremacist talking to white supremacists. And this is becoming a political issue now. But, but before that, I mean, I was confronted to these people when I was working at Microsoft. They are very good people. But they just don't get the political context of the tools they have created. So it's uh, one of the reasons why we should have, we need to have people who are, uh, let's say, uh, able to engage with them uh, and, and, and talk and create the content and experiences of candidates. And otherwise, we have the risk to our security identifying that you are bubbles of people talking to their own bubbles. And it's uh, a real risk. Uh, the good thing is you can have great movement like like this of water coming out of the internet with people. And then you can also have great supremacists uh, using the same tools to more or less destroy uh, the community. So it's really a big debate. And, and, and fortunately, the traditional television uh, skills we have on us is that we prepare ourselves to this world. But that's my whole experience because I'm animated in two different worlds, and uh, it's, it's a real issue. But, but I would say, Then effectively you can then, then they think 
say, ah, I, mean, I don't care about that because that's left-wing bias crap. But somewhere in the middle, you can make a program which, or make work, or it'll be digital in the future, in my opinion, very shortly. You can have this stuff where they can come to it because they feel it is honest. And I think that's what we've lost sight of. Because, of this, because we have this liberal consensus, we have lost honesty. And the only people giving having conversations on the other side, as it were, are as dishonest as the liberal consensus, as it were. So that middle ground is what we need to be thinking about. How do we make programs that effectively are honest enough about what the real story is?
Sundowns, where we were, you know, what do we stand for? We stand for, um, uh, you know, the independent voice and the, the right of everybody to, to speak and tell stories or whatever it is. Fairly important but fairly bland things that, that are not particularly controversial. Um, I think that we can create these bigger bubbles by, by finding a different way and depoliticizing to a certain extent um, the way we engage with each other. Um, and I was thinking about, I was talking to somebody who'd done a big study on fandom, so Harry Potter fans, deep research into what their moral frameworks are. So you have all kinds of people who are Harry Potter fans from all, all different generations who then can actually mobilise around particular uh, social interests because they've expressed it through their fandom of Harry Potter. When we think of where everybody gathers, different classes, different races, different genders, different religions, sport, these big cultural phenomena where actually people are together and can have a conversation. And so if we 